Welcome to the What Next podcast, brought to you by me, Carl Considine. What Next exists to share sober stories with the intention of inspiring change for the better. Whether you're sober, sober curious, or just looking for general life inspiration, we're the podcast for you. Our stories are full of heart and always without judgment. So on today's episode, I'm joined by Matt Ryan. Matt has been teaching yoga and practicing yoga for the last 25 years, I believe. Um, He is Mancunian through and through. He's a father of four. And prior to yoga, is an ex-Hacienda DJ, Hacienda being one of the most infamous nightclubs in the North, possibly, would it be fair to say, Matt, in Europe of its time? The, the Hacienda as a nightclub or, yeah. the, or Flesh as a night or both? Well, both. You DJed at Flesh, right? Yeah, that's correct. I think, you know, the, the, the Hacienda as a, as a club um, was, was world-renowned, I think, mm. for sure. And then, obviously, I was DJing at Flesh. And that was, like I mentioned to you before, it was at one point the, the hottest night in Europe. Mm. You know, every Tom, Dick and Deirdre DJ wanted to DJ there. I mean, I was just fortunate that I, you know, that I knew the right people. It's not what you know, it's who you know. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I think I made a career out of that. So I, I guess before jumping into that, it, we met at one of your yoga classes not that long ago. And, and you've um, not been back, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been you know that good if you've not been back. I'm a busy guy, Matt. I host a podcast. Um no, I haven't been back, but what I will say is I absolutely loved it. Um, I loved your yoga philosophy. I loved that it was inclusive and I didn't feel pressured to be at a certain level. I could just adapt to um, the style of yoga that, that you deliver. Um, but what I loved more so was the conversation that we had at the end of the class where you were just so open with me and shared that you were 20 years plus sober. Um, and it was almost like one of those moments where, and this could sound a little bit tweet, but, you know, the universe, sometimes I think the universe brings people together. And, you know, the fact that I'm doing this podcast and you were like, oh, hey, yeah, I'm also sober. And straight away, actually, you said to me, oh, I'm up for coming on the podcast when I started <laughs> telling you about it. Um, so, yeah, firstly, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're most welcome. Yeah, yeah. You're most welcome. So... Uh, Tell us about DJing and tell us about the Hacienda then. I, I think I am, so you DJed at this night, Flesh. Yeah. And when you mentioned that to me, I did a bit of research. And um, from what I can gather back in the 90s, Flesh was a massive gay night um, and massive in the sense of not just for Manchester and the north of England, but for Europe. Mm. Um, and as I read about um the kind of carnival style of that night, it just sounded fantastic. Um, so I'd love to hear a bit more about it and a bit more about your time there. Well, it was it was the uh, the brainchild of a certain young man called Paul Cons, who was a PR guru, I think. And like I mentioned to you before, he 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 started at the hacienda as the the, the flyer boy, and then worked himself up, and then he started because he'd come from a theatrical background. In fact, he was studying some kind of theatre studies at Manchester Polytechnic, alongside Adrian Edmondson and Rick Mayall, as I 
recall. Mm. Uh, anyway, so he, and then Wilson, Tony Wilson paid for him to go to New York in the 80s. Not many people know that, but he'd gone off to New York. He did all this research, brought it all back and put it into nights like Zumbar and Nude and Hot. But then uh, being a gay man, he always wanted to do uh, his own gay night. Right. And, you know, so Flesh was born and, you know, he, he wanted to add this, you know this this a drama to it a theater to it so there's all these different kind of aspects to each night it was once a month and you know it was like it became this phenomenon you know that people were like okay what's you know what theme because it had a different theme each mm. month um you know like there was a cowboy night there was a, a football night during the world cup but you know and it was mm. just yeah it was just brilliant it was just phenomenal nothing like it and like i said people would come from all parts of the country all parts of europe because it was that hot a night yeah and and, and literally i got into it i mean i got into djing you know as as a um like a lot of people did in the late 80s when house music arrived mm. all those indie kids you know got rid of the guitars and bought decks and records and got into it and <laughs> I was up in, um, I lived in Glasgow, actually, <laughs> which is another story we can go into at some point. Yeah, in, 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 in 1990, a mate of mine lived in Glasgow. And um, Glasgow was the European city of culture. And, you know, it was all about going out, getting off our heads. <laughs> mm. And there was nightclubs till five o'clock in the morning. And you couldn't get nightclubs till five o'clock in the morning anywhere else in the country. So, you know, I went up specifically <laughs> for the the nightlife in glasgow anyway so i um yeah that's where the start of all my kind of problems began i guess like you were it sounds like you're talking about the if i think about like peak clubbing and house music and the 90s and and that whole era um there was a very specific vibe around drug use and house music and clubs and um sure even though i was i started going out i think towards the end of the 90s so i was at the tail end of it um but very quickly got into that scene and got into taking ecstasy and just going out and and having a nice time so did, what was it like for you in terms of you had your role as a dj right so your professional role but then there's the other side of the decks in terms of you going out and being part of that scene yourself well, the, the the kind of the in the late eighties when the hacienda really exploded, um, you know, with the introduction of house music and ecstasy, and we were all there. It was just incredible. And then, you know, it was uh, halfway through that. Well, the, the end of eighty nine, ninety. I went then continued the partying up in Glasgow <laughs> because right. I could go nightclubbing. And then, you know, I guess we'll get into it later. That's where my problems with depersonalization happened anyway so i moved back to back back to england i lived with um with our friend who we were talking about before in india house and paul cons lived upstairs <laughs> right and it was simply that it, it was it was that you know that was the introduction and um, paul was um, michelle's friend and we you know we we got introduced and we got on and you know i'd bought dex by that time and like i said before it's like you know it's not what you know it's who you know mm -hmm. uh, and i i started work and we also had a, a, a fantastic night called the glory hole which was like a mini flesh uh, and this was uh, uh what was it called well it came to be called south nightclub but prior to that it was um i can't remember now but we had this, yeah, this mini weekly flesh called the Glory Hole. So that's where I started. And then I was doing flesh once a month too. Mm. Yeah. So how old were you when you started DJing at Hacienda? Um, 23. 
24, something like that, yeah. Around that, yeah. yeah wow. I mean, it was, it was just incredible, you know. that, uh, And it's interesting because I, I look back on, on my life and look at the things that I enjoy. I mean, I teach yoga, uh, as I was just mentioning to you before, because I've because I feel what I'm doing is of worthwhile to people. But mm. on from that, it's, I wouldn't say entertaining people or putting a couple of dad jokes now and again, but it's like <laughs> wanting people to be kind of happy in, in one way, sense of form, you know? Yeah. And it was the same when I was DJing. It was like this sense of giving people, you know, obviously drugs helped as well. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, being in this environment and playing the right records in the right order and, you know, seeing people jumping around it was just incredible really yeah you like making people feel good yes yes yeah i mean it's that sounds a bit tweed doesn't it a bit naff but, it, but it's true it's the truth absolutely you know i see people winning on blankety blank and i've got tears in my eyes like oh <laughs> how good's that you know <laughs> I, love that. I do remember actually in like one yoga class of yours that i've attended um <laughs> I do remember you telling some dad jokes. Um, but it sounds like it, at the core of what you're saying there is, you know, you love DJing because you love to see how it impacted people and the euphoria of people enjoying the night, dancing, having a good time. You know, you got into yoga for perhaps a different reason consciously at the start, but sure. actually what you're still doing is helping people, right? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And and doing it from that, like I said, doing it for 25 years, I've, mm. as I said before, faked it till you make it. Mm. Uh, but now feeling that I've, I'm in a position where I, 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 you know, I feel what I'm doing is of value to people. And I, I, I feel there's an authenticity there from me um, that I need for myself. You know, I can't fake it, really. Mm. Mm. Um, Massively. So what was, um, I guess, like talking about those years, you were in your early 20s, you were DJing, you were also clubbing. Um, you know, what next is stories of sobriety, right? And we talk about drink, we talk about drugs. How would you describe your relationship with drink and or drugs back then? What was your usage like? Well, I'd, I was, you know, from an early age, I think I took mushrooms when I was about 15 Right. Uh, and that kind of blew my mind a little bit. And I, 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 you know, I had this kind of this, this, I was drawn to, you know, to altered states of consciousness, I guess. You know, first it was, was mushrooms and then, um, you know, smoking um, weed, cannabis, you know. And then, you know, it felt like a natural kind of progression into taking ecstasy. It was just, you know, a, a time it, it felt good, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but being an all or nothing kind of guy, which wasn't great, but also having a very weak constitution, you know, a couple of pints and I'd be pissed type of thing. Mm -hmm. And it was the same with, 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 you know, with drugs, with ecstasy, you know. You know, we about these people taking nine, ten E's a night. I mean, I was never that guy. It'd be like, you know, one would be enough and I would be like completely whacked. Mm. Um, yeah. Sorry, what was the question? <laughs> just, no, I was just interested in your, yeah, your relationship with drink and drugs. And um, I mean, it sounds like at the time it was about, you described it, I think you used the words there, getting out of your head. Yes. Um, which is exactly what it is, isn't it? It's getting out of your present state of mind and getting into a different state of mind yeah i mean whether how deeply you want to psychologize that you know i mean we've both talked about kind of 
childhood trauma. I mean, you know, uh, we'll get into it as well. My dad was an alcoholic. You know, my whole kind of childhood was blighted by my father's alcoholism. And I guess in later years, that's been, you know, uh, I mean, he's passed away from alcohol abuse, you know, about 10, 11 years ago now. But, you know, it was easy for me not to drink because I've seen the destruction that mm. it created, you know, mm. just utter destruction. And so, I, I, you know, I was never a big boozer, really. Um, I, I, I was far more kind of drawn towards kind of, you know, to, 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 to drugs, to eat, to, you know, mm-hmm. smoking and, uh, and the rest of it. Not that I was, you know, I wasn't teetotal, not, not by a long chalk, mm. really. But, I, you know, it was all about the, the, the e-scene at mm. the time. And I guess that's just also the environment that you're in, right? Of course, um, yeah. The house music scene was essentially fueled by ecstasy and the love of music, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I read in, before our conversation, I've been reading some of the blogs on your website, mm-hmm. um, which I think is mattryanyoga.com. It's mattryan.yoga. Mattryan. Because you can have .yoga now as ah, a nice, uh, nice. Yeah, um, yeah. And there's some really really vulnerable blogs on there where you have written about some of your experiences and in one of the blogs you talk about the way that you describe drug use um you talk about people people who use drugs in a certain way potentially have a backstory and there probably is a backstory um and i guess that really resonated with me because i know that my drink and drug use was was linked to a backstory and was linked to childhood etc and I guess I just wanted to pose that question to you. Like, what's the backstory? Is there a link there or? Well, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, like I said, my dad was an alcoholic. And not mm. only that, you know, we, we, we moved around. I was born in, in Withington, lived in um, Burnage. And then the next thing we were moving to Stoke-on-Trent. And the next thing we were moving to Wales. And the next thing we were moving to Stockport. The next thing we were moving to the Isle of Man. You know, it was dragging, you know, this family all over the 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 country i mean nowhere kind of <laughs> mm. nowhere nice <laughs> mm. but you know in, in in each of these kind of places you know the the alcoholism became more obvious and and more kind of you know by I was affected by it you know mm. i mentioned before when we lived in stockport i must have been about eight or nine something like that and you know my mum had gone out She's taking a couple of my sisters dancing and we, me and my dad, we said in watching the football and my dad thought it was a good idea to give his eight-year-old son a tin of lager, God. you know. And obviously I got completely blottoed. My mum came back and obviously hit the roof and then he was drunk by that time so they had a big fight and, you know, that, seeing that and he attacked my mum, it was just brutal, man. Mm. You know, and, I, you know, it's, it, yeah. I mean, that's just, you know, kind of one incident and, mm. uh, and even going back, you know, my, my, my father was in and out of Cheadle Royal. I don't know. Is Cheadle Royal still a thing? I don't know. There was this hospital in Cheadle, Cheadle mm. Royal, which was a kind of psychiatric hospital um, where, you know, they dealt with a lot of alcoholism. I mean, I, I only found out later that he, he actually had e, electroshock therapy, ES, EST. Right. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah. And he had all kinds of kind of treatments. Uh, and, and, you know, at the time, you know, I was at primary school and um, your dad's in hospital. Why is he in hospital? Well, he's just not well. Why is he not well? No one kind of telling you. And then, you know, even I remember maybe I was kind of six or seven and I'd sussed it out for myself. And, you know, my mum used to hide his bottles of booze and he would say to me and my sister, you know, 
if you find those, you know, if you find the bottle somewhere, I'll give you 50p. Uh, you know, this is a thing I can remember quite kind of clearly, really, was was like me saying to my sister, you know, don't find them, don't find them. Because, you know, I knew at six or seven years of age or whatever, it wasn't a good thing, you know. Mm. Um, and so I guess all these different stories mm. are my back, it's my back story, really. What impact did that have on you when you were growing up? It's a lot to deal with as, you know, say yeah. six, seven, eight years old. Well, it felt like, you know, looking back on my life, uh, it feels, you know, as I've got older and I've reflected more, just thinking, whoa, it was heavy, heavy, man. And, you know, as a child, you just get on with it. You don't kind of, you don't know anything different. And it's hard, you know, I mean, we've not got enough time in this conversation to get into it, but it's had a massive impact in the way I am as a person, the way I interact with other people, the way I'm mm. in relationships, and not for the good, to be honest with you, mm. really. Um, I mean, I'm, uh, this whole moving around thing, you know, I'm, I'm 54, and I've never lived anywhere longer than two years. And a lot of that, certainly of later life, has been dictated by the conditioning that I had in my year, earlier years of being moved around. It felt normal. This is what normal is, moving around. So even as I you know, moved out of home, I, I still moved around because that's what I'd learned to do. Mm. And, you know. Um, it's just that instability, isn't it? Yeah, but the, it, that, the instability was the, was the norm mm. and not understanding it as instability. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Do you know, it really does because we, when I was a kid, we moved around constantly mm. um we'd live somewhere for six months to a year then we'd move somewhere else yep, and yep. um to me that was always the norm exactly yeah. as you've just described it and then when i got older i i moved around quite a lot so i've lived in leeds manchester london i lived overseas for years lived in different countries i've, I've been in the med the caribbean wow. india nice. um wow. so i've always moved around and um Sometimes I get, although I've been in Manchester 10 years now, so I'm, I'm doing all right. Um, yeah, I get that. I think because I was never settled as a child, I struggle 100%. to feel settled as an adult. You know, I, I, as you know, I mean, the last 10 years um, when I was with, you know, my now ex-wife, you know, we, we, we got together and then we moved to L.A. And then we'd, we moved back from L.A., moved to London, and then we moved back to Manchester and then we went back to L.A., and, you know, one sense it was this, all right, great, L.A. But I, I think kind of looking at it a little bit more deeply, it was just back to this idea of movement. And even now I can feel it. You know, I, I've got a, a mate still from my L.A. days. He says, you know, you, you know, everyone loved you in L.A. And I think, all right, yeah, maybe I should go back to L.A. Mm. And, it's, and, and it's not so much about, you know, the L.A. It's just the sense of, going somewhere else again mm. because that movement feels like you know the the norm mm. the, you know yeah, yeah totally or looking for something potentially yeah um in it i go to fellowship meetings and um i'm not saying this is um reflective of you by the way but they talk about geographicals mm -hmm. um which is when um alcoholics or addicts are just kind of looking for something else yeah. um and having a geographical i.e moving cities towns countries yeah. to the other side of the world to find that thing um but ultimately you're always bringing the thing with you because the thing is within you it's Wherever not somewhere you go, else there you are yeah. as the phrase says 
Yeah. Yeah. But nice. I, I mean, yeah, I think that there is an element of that um, and how much that comes into play more so than the act of moving. I'm not, I'm not so sure. Mm. Um, you know, what's the phrase? The grass is always greener, but just as hard to cut. And uh, I, I think, you know, this, this, this sense of moving, mm. like, which has just been this, you know, this on repeat, on repeat for my whole 54 years. And, and it's, I, you know, when we moved back from LA and we lived in Dover and then, because we had a house in Wally Range and then eventually we sold that and we bought this house in Ramsgate. I was thinking, right, okay, that's it now. You know, I've, 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 I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to be moving again. And then, of course, you know, the, uh, we, we split up and then, you know, the, the whole thing, the whole roadshow, the, the Matt Ryan roadshow began again. Mm. As the, yeah, and it, I, you know, I don't think it's going to be slowing up anytime soon. I can't, I can't imagine myself being in one place um yeah for the for the foreseeable mm. but who's to say that's normal right it, yeah, you yeah, know of course, yeah. um let's normalize what people want to do with their yeah. lives yeah um so take us back then so we talked about kind of djing and um you mentioned very briefly uh, a condition called depersonalization and um i guess in the spirit of of this conversation being around um kind of drink drugs and and then sobriety what did that what was the trigger for you getting sober and and what did that transition look like so yeah i mean depersonalization is a very little known kind of m mental disorder um i'm kind of you know it gets kind of lumped in with anxiety or depression which it doesn't really go in either camps you know i remember i mean the 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 the, the list of psychiatrists and psychologists that I've seen over the years, they say, are you depressed? Are you anxious? And I was depressed because I had depersonalization. I was anxious because I had depersonalization. Mm. And this disorder, uh, I mean, obviously having kind of been dealing with it for the past ooh, 30 years plus now, um, you know, I kind of know it inside out and um, it raises its head every, every so often. But, you know, I, I, as a disorder, as I believe, it, it's kind of it's a, a, an evolutionary tactic that the brain um, uses in moments of terror. So, um, yeah, if, if you're like you're crossing the road and you're going to get knocked over, your brain switches into depersonalized mode. So it doesn't feel like it's you being knocked over. Right. But the disorder, uh, DPD, depersonalization disorder, is when you get landlocked in that state where there's no there's no it you know it's not momentary it's not two or three seconds it's, it goes on and you know it's it's i can't describe there's no words to describe just how evil it is you know that sounds a little bit kind of uh, <laughs> a big statement but it, yeah it, it's 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 yeah it's awful i i only i say to people have you ever had a panic attack or have you ever had a bad acid trip or a bad trip it's like that, but it, you know, it goes on and on weeks, months, years, you know. Uh, and so that first time in Glasgow, not first time, when I was living in Glasgow and I was, you know, out for the, the E weekend, literally every weekend, every weekend. And then I once had this panic attack, um, uh, which was kind of, you know, down to the ecstasy or whether it was the quality of the ecstasy, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of, it, it became this, this rolling out this 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 panic attack into this weird kind of surreal feelings where i you know didn't feel real and it felt odd being a person which sounds 
you know, that sounds a bit weird. I can tell you it's fucking not weird. It sounds evil. awful. It's, it's, it, yeah, I mean, you, you're freaking out because you don't feel real and your, your thoughts are being coming up and they don't, you know, mm. it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's awful. And so at that point, Carl, in some ways it was easy to just stop because, you know, it was that, uh, you know, I, I couldn't have even thought or dreamt about taking drugs or drink at that mm. point. You know, it's just, I'd gone into this real panic state of this depersonalized state. And, you know, I went to see, I was in Glasgow, went to see a few different doctors. They were prescribing medication. I was too freaked out to take the medication. Mm. And I mean, then what happened from there? I got, the, the, you know, I got transferred because I was working in shops at the time. I got transferred back to a place in Manchester, more doctors. I got taken into the psychiatric department at Steppenhill Hospital for five days for observation. And that God. didn't, yeah, I mean, that was, that was brutal because it was just like, as I remember it, it was kind of a, a, a shared ward. It was male and females. And it was, it felt like there was lots of kind of elder women who all thought they were my mother. So it just mm. made things worse, you know? And I, I think I kind of, um, uh, what you do when you check yourself out? I'll just check myself out, you know. Um, discharge yourself. Discharge myself, yeah. that's the word, yeah. And the, the ongoing from various, uh, you know, antipsychotics, antidepressants, you know. So the, the, the whole idea of, of, of remaining sober was, was an easy choice. Right. It was, you know. And, but then, you know, what happened is the, 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 the um, I mean, this is how I got to know Paul because, you know, I was living in India house. Michelle had introduced me to Paul and Paul had had something vaguely similar and he'd mentioned a reflexologist. So I started having reflexology and over it was a, it was a period of time that the, that the symptoms became much less and less. And then guess what? I was thinking, um, all right, right. Guess what? That problem with depersonalization, it was ecstasy based cocaine's going to be fine <laughs> right so now i'm on the, the nose bag charlie you know so instead of taking ease i was on, on i was taking cocaine pretty much every every weekend while you know this was the djing days now were happening and did the problem go away no so exactly the same thing happened exactly the same thing happened you know uh i can't remember the, the time framing of these things but it was a sunday morning after a night on you know after a, a, a bender the night before and i was out with a friend panic attack ah, panic attack boom 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 within before i know it depersonalization but it was worse than before it was even worse mm. and so you know it was again that kind of choice where i was just able to stop boom no coke no no drink it was just an easy choice to make it was an you know not an easy choice to make, but it was a, a necessity. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're feeling that strung out. It was, you know, and again, it was a, a time frame of a, and a, a cocktail of, you know, all the different kinds of medications and this, that, the other. And it's so evil that you're willing to do anything and everything within your grasp. I mean, I mean, ironically enough, I'll, I'll, I'll get to it. What helped me kind of uh, in, the, in the long run was finding a, a kind of a, a psychologist who taught me to be present to it. 
Because one of the things that exacerbated the problem, because it's so evil, you want to get rid of it. So you're running around trying to find a magic bullet. And by doing that, because the magic bullets don't exist, mm. unless you're going to take one of the um, Tamazipan things where they just kind of, where you're completely, and I, I, I used to hate that feeling. Um, so I would never take those kind of drugs, mm. the, um, the opiate type of ones. So what was yeah, going sorry. through your mind when you were going through this process of seeing various doctors, you'd been in hospitals, in psychiatric care, and um, you know, you'd had this initial experience that was actually whilst you was on ecstasy. Um, I mean, it just sounds really scary, um, but also quite confusing. Like what was going through your mind in terms of what was happening to you? Um, well, it's, yeah, I mean, like I say, if you've ever had a bad acid trip or a, a panic attack, it's this fear. You just fear. It's just, you, 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 yeah, you, you're kind of struck down by the whole thing. And, you know, you're just on this massive search trying to find, you know, I remember going, because the, the internet was had been a thing then. So you started going online and trying to find, well, this, you know, I found this guy in the States um who uh, a doctor a psychiatrist dr janiger i think he was and he'd had depersonalization so he had first-hand experience and 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 he was saying a certain a, a, a tricyclic is it tri tricyclic i can't remember it's not the right phrase a certain antidepressant that he found had worked so i'd go into the doctor and say listen can i have this one now you know mm. what i mean and the doctor mm. was uh, it wouldn't obviously he wouldn't prescribe it because just just because i'd read about it somewhere you know it'd be nuts <laughs> And, you diagnose um, yourself online. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and you, you know what, Carl? Uh, uh, kind of to 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 bring it back to yoga. Yoga was just something that someone had suggested. I mean, that idea of I'm I'm searching for for anything and anything, mm. everything that could happen, whether it's you know Western medicines, whether it was you know I would try reflexology as I mentioned, like flower essences, you name it. I've tried it as mm. you know the search. And the, the yoga thing was just a piece of paper handed me saying, why don't you try yoga? And this was 99 or 98 something. Right. And I was like, you know, I'm shit kicking Scally from, from Manchester. We don't do yoga. You know, <laughs> what is that? You know, <laughs> all women churches like her. And no, thank you. <laughs> so, but I was convinced I went to this class and it was this form of yoga called Ashtanga yoga, which is quite hard. Um, and I remember going to the class you know, make a joke about it being two classes in one, my first and last. I thought there's no way I'm coming back here because it was really hard work. Mm. And, um, but I don't know. It was just the pure physicality of it. Uh, and with the depersonalization, the depersonalization created the anxiety and the kind of fed to each other. Right. So, you, you, you know, from a kind of very simple perspective, that anxiety is, um, you know, uh, breeds on, on on energy yeah do you know what i mean yeah the so yoga was yeah. a way of managing the, that yeah, the, the yoga because it was very physical you know by the time at the end of the class i was finished i didn't have any energy so there'd be no energy mm. for the anxiety mm. so the anxiety would become less and it was like right okay and the specific thing about this ashtanga practice it was a a a set sequence and so i would go home and do it at home and because it worked it's like, right, I'm going to do this every day. It's buying that magic bullet type of thing. This all or nothing kind of, you know, that Piscean trait that I have, <laughs> uh, you know. And I, I just found that it helped, you know. Uh, and I, uh, yeah. 
And did it, so had you stopped using drugs at this point then? Yeah, absolutely. And people, you know, I make a joke about it. People say, you know, have you not managed to drink or take drugs for all these years? I say, get yourself a good anxiety disorder. That will help help you out. (laughs) You know, get yourself a dose of That's enough to put you off. Yeah, yeah, you won't be going back. No chance. So how long have you been sober, Matt? Um, 24, 25 years. Well, it's 25 years alcohol longer with, with drugs. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. And you literally just made a conscious decision to stop because of your health. Yeah. And you haven't done it since without yeah. any help. Well, pretty much. I mean, like I said, you know, the, 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 the nod to the, 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 the childhood and the, the alcoholic father, mm. so that was always there in the background as a thing. And I'd always, I, I played a lot of football as a kid. And so mm. I was always quite sporty. But I, I also understood the, um, you know, the, the, a, a great way to get out of your, get out of your head is to get into your body. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, exercise, you know. So, I, I you know, I, I would, I'd be running a lot, running a lot because I knew physical exercise. So I've always been, you know, understood the, um, the, the 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 purpose of physical health and well-being and and that combining you know mind and body two sides of the same coin get fit in body fit in mind so you know it it just so happened that that it was this yoga practice that did it for me you know yeah Uh, and 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 i kind of jumped in and, and i stayed with it and you know knowing that this was keeping the the wolf from the door type of thing i didn't want to disturb that kind of fine eco system (laughs) of Mm. mind and body so you know taking drugs or alcohol wasn't on the agenda wasn't an option no it's amazing isn't it i think exercise fitness wellness whatever words you want to use Mm -hmm. the the power is just so underestimated and you know since i got sober in my first year of sobriety um I didn't really do much other than eat cakes and biscuits and drink cans of pop. And I just craved sugar so much. Um, But it was because I was consuming so much alcohol. When I stopped, my body was like, where's the sugar? Um, So I put on a load of weight. I put on, I was three stone heavier than I am today. Um, And towards the end of my first year, I got a PT and I found fitness. And I found it in a way that was, it became my thing and and all of the things that you've just described movement um kind of how the getting the energy out of my body getting the anxiety out of my body um and it sounds like oh you're just exercising because of this negative thing that's happening to you but i actually love exercise now and i notice the impact on my mental health and how i feel when i don't do it um i just think it's so important i i i did you ever? There's a great documentary on on Netflix um, with Jonah Hill and his psychiatrist. It's called Stutz. I don't know if you've seen. Oh, it or not. do you know I've seen about half of it? It's great. Yeah, I mean, what I like about that, I mean, he's a psychiatrist, isn't he? Uh, or is he a psychologist? Or, he's is, a psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, and he's got all these little tools and techniques. The, the tools and techniques are for me are the thing um, that makes it not you know because he's basically saying, you know do this thing, do these things and they will help you. Yeah. And, and similarly, you know, for me, if someone said, have you got any advice? I would say, do some physical exercise, find mm. something you like, but do it. Mm. Yeah. Whether it's swimming, running, you know, 
whatever it would be. Mine mm. was just happened to be Ashtanga yoga, you yeah. know, uh, and, and I'm fortunate and, and grateful that I, that, I, that I found it and did connect to it. But, mm. you know, if you want a two penneth worth piece of advice, get out of your head, get in your body, get running, get swimming, whatever it is, but do it. You need to do it. Good 100%. Advice. It's, good advice. It, 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 it's just, yeah. I'm really interested in Matt. Um, it sounds like you went from, if you think of like a spectrum or a scale, from uh, one end being you were a DJ, you were out having these e weekends as you describe them, uh, you know, kind of really immersed in that culture and in that environment mm-hmm. to walking into your first yoga class, then becoming really obsessed with ashtanga and and teaching yourself etc etc it i'm interested in what that transition looked like because you must have had to really change the way that you spent your time the people that you mixed with yeah, like yeah. what was that yeah, like when we mixed you know like Matt ryan what fucking Matt ryan's lost it doing fucking yoga <laughs> yeah it's funny <laughs> you know and it, i tell you what's quite interesting you know a lot of the people who were kind of thought i'd lost it you know certainly the last five ten years they're all about uh, fancy a bit of that yoga match fun you know da, 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 you know oh, they all want to do a bit it's funny yeah but it, it yeah I, I mean i was on a mission you know and it didn't matter that i didn't see these people anymore uh and i didn't go out anymore did you just stop going out yeah yeah 100 percent. wow i made yeah i'm because there was all these connections with you know uh with with the depersonalization pretty much mm. that i just knew i didn't need you know i didn't i i yeah, I didn't want to do. I just stopped. Yeah. I mean, it's back to that. Um, at the, I'm calling it a Piscean thing, whether it's not or not. You know, the, 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 I guess it is a discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it's a discipline been brought about by necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. And what impact out, did that have on you? Sorry to interrupt you. Sorry. I, I guess just thinking, I know a blocker for me when I was getting sober was losing my social circle and the party scene and because i felt like it was so important to me even though it's ruining my health mm. um and i think there are people that um probably want to get sober and live a certain lifestyle but are worried about getting sober because they'll lose friendships or a social scene etc and um as someone who was really immersed in that what impact did that have on you just saying right okay i'm stopping doing that and this is what i do now Tell you what, I've always, I mean, like, I mean, you probably read it in the blogs. I've always been very open and honest about my struggle. And it wasn't, I tried to cover things up and I was just open and honest to people why I would stop going out, mm. you know. And, and yeah, I lost a few people along the way, um, you know, collateral damage. <laughs> mm. But, you know, the good friends stayed with me, really, you know. And they were supportive, you know, some of them were for sure. And some, of them, I mean, some of them didn't understand and you can't blame people for not understanding, mm. um, certainly. But, um, I, I, and, I, and I guess, yeah, I just, because I, I threw myself into yoga and I, I, I started going to classes, doing it at home. You know, the next thing I, I you know, as I like to say, I hung up my headphones and naffed off to India. <laughs> uh, for a couple of months, uh, and it was like the big. It was the beginning of a, a new life in some ways, you know. And it's fun when I, you know, talk about DJ, and it felt, you know, it was a long time ago. It's a different lifetime ago. Mm. Um, uh, but it, you know, those few short years, it was incredible. But you know, I've been doing yoga now for twenty five years. I've been to India a bunch of times, mm. you know. 
Um, Tell us about, share some, I'd love to hear a bit about India and your time there. I've got a, a funny, a funny story. I bet uh, you've got a lot of funny stories. Yeah, I've got a lot of funny <laughs> stories, yeah. No, so the, the, you know, the, the, the head of the Ashtanga um, lineage was this guy called Patabha Joyce Guruji, as he was kind of known to his students. Now, you know, at the time, well, I'm, I still am a shit kicker from Manchester, but, you know, a scally, you know, I'd rocked up in India, like with all these, felt like all these weirdos in kind of bedlin in. <laughs> I was just there in my jeans and my T-shirt. But I'd, read, I'd heard about this thing about the touching of the feet, the kissing of the feet that you do for the guru. And, I'd, I'd, you know, I've not done my due diligence <laughs> correctly. Um because the first time I was there in 2000, you know, uh, January 2000 it was, and you, there was a whole bunch of other people and you went to meet the guru because you had to give the guru your dollar to pay for the, you know, for the time you were there. And I remember going in to it and I'm thinking, right, right, I've got to do this. I literally got down on my knees and kissed his feet. <laughs> my God. And he, he kind of looked at me startled because you don't, you don't, it's not the kissing of the feet. You, you, you touch him with your hands and it's, it's oh, kind okay. of, it's, uh, I, I, I mean, you went it. all in. Yeah. I was like, I thought, no, I thought you had to kiss him. It was like, <laughs> I kind of told that to a couple of people and they were like, what? How did he react? Well, he just was startled. Wasn't he? he was like, what's this fucking Muppet doing? This guy's friendly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, you know, kind of this, this, uh, yeah, this experience. And it was, I always felt, and I still do to a certain extent. I mean, I've not been for a while, but I've always mm. felt like a little bit of a, you know, an outsider because I've, I've not gone all in with certain aspects of, of the practice. And I guess in some ways of, you know, there's a whole spiritual side to yoga, which I kind of dance with a little bit because mm. I, 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 you know, I feel like some people are kind of just playing a game and, you know, the whole namaste bullshit. It right. It feels like there's an in, in or, you know, wanting this to be authentic. And when I feel that there's something not authentic there, I kind of move away from it. Right. And, you know, when I'm rocking up in India for that first time, you know, and, you know, having a sense of, you know, banks, we don't like bullshit, you know, <laughs> and there being a lot of bullshit there. It's like, right, okay. And it's not that I felt, it was more about the people than the actual pra practice and place. The practice right. I had this connection to, so I knew about that. And the place, I mean, I mean, you've been to India, it's, it's mind-blowing. Mm. Um, but, yeah. So I've always had that kind of, you know, hmm, kind of uh, distance away from people pro professing to be holier than thou or, you know. Yeah, yeah. Tell me more about kind of dancing with the spiritual side of the practice. It, I guess as someone who has, you've been doing it for 25 years, right? And it is, yoga is very well known and portrayed to be a spiritual practice. So what does that look like for you then? Do you, you know, we've talked about your mental health and mm. um, specific mental health conditions. Sure. And it sounds like you find respite in well, that practice. So what does the spiritual element look like? In some ways, it's quite interesting. I mean, the depersonalization thing, I kind of connect the dots a little bit like this. You know, these personalizations where you don't feel real. Right. Yeah. That's in a nutshell. Um, uh, so it's there's always been a, 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 a thirst for, for the real, for wanting something solid. Uh, yeah, I think. And part of the um, the kind of the yoga and its lineage lineage around Hinduism and 
books like the Bhagavad Gita and you know the the Shiva and all the pantheon of gods, mm. and it felt not real. And because it didn't feel real, I didn't have a connection to it, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. And you know, people are talking about you know uh, all these various the Hindu gods and the Ganeshas and the you know all all, all the thing, and I, I I never felt drawn to it at all. Um, and then it was interesting. I kind of found this book um, on Amazon. <laughs> you know, when you go on Amazon, it says, if you like that book, you might like this one. <laughs> uh, we've all done it a million yeah. times, right? And uh, I mean, that cliche, never book, never judge a book by its cover. That's exactly what I did. There was a book called Hardcore Zen. And there was a, there was a cartoon budder on the front with a Mohican. I thought, right, I'm having a bit of that. <laughs> and um, I bought this book. Uh, and it was kind of about Zen meditation. And I read this by this, this, this author called Brad Warner and it kind of blew my mind a little bit. And it changed my whole perspective on this idea of, of a spiritual path, because here is something that I could align myself with because it felt real and authentic. Mm. Whereas perhaps some of the kind of the, 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 the Hindu kind of type stuff, like the Bhagavad Gita and, you know, all the, the other bits and pieces around mm. it, the bells and whistles, as I like to call it. Mm. Uh, it I, I never felt, I never aligned myself. Whereas this Zen practice, and this Zen practice was built around this very simple meditation practice. Right. And it was easy to fall into because I had this discipline. They had the discipline from the yoga practice, you know, and that came from feeling that it had some benefit on my body and thus mind. Yeah, so I did it and did it and did it and did it. So I had that discipline of a regular practice and I did it regular practice because I knew it helped. And then I got this book, Hardcore Zen, and this guy's talking about, right, you're doing this um, particular form of practice, Shikantaza, which is just sitting, you're looking at a wall. <laughs> I can go into that if you want. With your eyes are open and, you know, you're just sitting and it's about the repetition of practice. And, and for me, it was like, yeah, I can do that because I've already dis established mm. a discipline. So mm. now I'm going to add in this Zen practice. And it felt very real, very authentic. And, uh, and you know, something that I could, you know, get my teeth into, if you like. And so I've been kind of kind of into that, studying that for the past 10, 15 years. Mm. And I'm trying to bring elements of that into my class. So instead of doing a relaxation at the end, I do this short little seat seated practice, mm. kind of short little meditation type mm. of thing. Yeah. Nice. Sounds amazing. I mean, you're giving me all of the Zen vibes. Um, I must say, um, we're you should see only, me the football. I'm, well, yeah, we're only a few episodes into what next podcast, but this is the first time I've sat with my trainers off and my legs up on the sofa. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely feeding off your Zen energy. Um, before we came into the studio tonight, actually, we were just chatting on the walk up and we were talking about, um, I guess, like reflecting on the good old days and kind of going out and clubbing and, and having fun. And um, I'm really interested in your point of view because this is something I've struggled with a little bit. When I first got sober, I think everything that I'd done in the past that was related to drink or drug use felt tainted and felt like I had a negative view on. And um, kind of what I've come to realize more recently is, do you know what? Although I would, um, you know, I described myself as an alcoholic and an addict in recovery and I had some really tough, dark times. I also had some great times. Mm -hmm. 
when I was out clubbing with friends, you know, going to festivals, going to amazing club nights, going on holidays, um, drinking and taking drugs. And um, I think what I've come to realize in my third year of sobriety that that's okay. It's okay to acknowledge that, right? I think it's important to acknowledge it. It is, absolutely. Um, Because that, I think, in some ways uh, allows you... um, I mean, maybe it's not for every person, but mm. a, a, a allows you to kind of have this healthy distance from it. Because mm. I think, because, you know, you know, I guess in your heart, in your mind, that at some point there were some good times. Mm. And maybe, you know, obviously towards the end it became a problem, then there weren't good times. Mm. But, you know, acknowledging that there were some good times and kind of, right, okay, that's that part of my life done mm. now. I don't need to revisit it. Mm. and yeah uh, it's kind of finished and it's over and like for me um you know looking back at some amazing times and i'm I'm not a soapbox type of guy i'm Mm. not going to get up like you know brad um the uh the guy i mentioned before he has this phrase you know i'm not going to tell you how how i'm not going to tell you how to live your life but from the words of bill and ted excellent adventure be excellent to each other (laughs) and i love that as a phrase you know just be excellent to each other i can't you know i can't tell you how to live your life what Mm. to do what not to do i can give you the you know the 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 the, i can give you my story and my experiences and whether you can get something from that and you know uh, then great you know if you want some advice which you know i i guess my advice is just born out of my own experience um Yeah. yeah Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, makes total sense. So I guess like what I'm getting from that is you look back on some of those days, well, lots of those days with fondness um, during that time, um, which is important to do, right? Yeah, no, 100%. You know, because then you have to, you know, as as evil as the depersonalization stuff was, you know, it ultimately made me who I am now and, uh, Mm. you know, and and led me to... um, to this path that I've been on for a good few years. You know, I mentioned before that, (laughs) this is a funny story. You know, I got diagnosed with ADHD and this was quite recently actually. Right. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, this is another label type of thing, you know, and I'd mentioned it to a couple of people, not in confidence, but, you know, I mentioned it. And literally every single one of them were like, oh yeah, no, we thought you knew. Yeah, we thought you knew. (laughs) And I was like, what? (laughs) You know, I, I just thought I was a busy guy, you know. Uh, and um, how did you feel about the diagnosis? Yeah, it was like I, I guess when you kind of you know do the math on it and look at certain aspects of my life and, and mm. the way I was living and the way I was acting, it kind of all made sense really. And it, it's I tried the medication for a bit, but didn't like it, mm. so I, I sacked it off and just you know, um, yeah. There was, there was a point to that story and the ADHD has taken me away from it. So, uh. What was, uh, just on the medication point, um, I read something in one of your blogs just around, I think you were exploring this idea of, you know, should we, shouldn't we take medication for mental illnesses, um, mental, con- mental health conditions? Um, should we find um, more therapeutic ways to like treat how we're feeling and what we're dealing with? And I know, you know, I'm not a doctor and I'm not an expert in this field, but it's quite a topical debate, right? And um, yeah, what you just mentioned there that you didn't like the way that the medication 
made you feel. No. So you stopped taking it. And sure. um, yeah, do you have a view on that medication well, versus like kind 100%, of self-treatment? You know, I, 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 I guess, um, I mean, I think part of that blog was about this idea that, you know, all, all yoga people think they're all, you know, bulletproof and spiritually fabulous and, you know, they're all healthy. I mean, there's this kind of meme going about bending so I don't break, you know, the inference being, you know, we do yoga so we don't break. And I think it's just, just evidently bullshit, you know, <laughs> that the, the, the correct the correct way of saying it should, should be bending to fix the break because mm. we're all, <laughs> you know, we're all broken in one way or another. So mm. that's why we use yoga to help fix us. And, uh, and, and this idea that, you know, yoga people or, you know, yoga people, what a stupid phrase, but you know, <laughs> you know we, we, those yoga people that do that yoga thing, people, bastards, all into the spiritual yeah, stuff. Yeah. All into the woo woo. Um, <laughs> But, you know, you know, I'm, I've been doing yoga for all this time. I shouldn't be taking, you know, medication. But, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer of find something that works. Yeah. Find something that works, you know. Yeah. And whether it's, you know, Western, Eastern, bit of both, you know, I think it's important. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, I, yeah. I was always, um, during my days of drinking and taking drugs, I was... Always been prescribed various antidepressants, medications for um, heart palpitations because I'd have anxiety attacks, basically beta blockers. And, um, you know, to some degree, I'd take them, I'd stop taking them, I'd take them, I'd stop taking them. Obviously, mm. Mm. my daily drinking and my what came to be daily cocaine use was having um, quite the opposite effect of what the medication was. And um, actually, since I've got sober and since I've started exercising and, and kind of sorting myself out, I don't need to take any medication. Um, you know, I still have down days mm -hmm. um, and I still have days where I struggle with my anxiety, but I've got different ways of treating it. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think if you need to take medication, then take the medication absolutely and follow the advice of your doctor. But actually, um, I was being prescribed it for such a long time and I didn't need to do Prozac it. I just needed Prozac to change. for 10 years and, you know, I don't think it had any benefit at all, really, uh, looking back. Um, I mean, the, the, back to the ADHD medication, you know, the first couple of times I took it, it felt like this... Um, it was almost like taking cocaine. I mean, I haven't taken cocaine for a long time, but it felt like this em empowerment... I was like, "Whoa, yeah!" And I'd be, and I, I've only I've only started drinking coffee in the like past twelve months, mm. but it's like I would get I would take one of these, you know, this ADHD medication. I'd start feeling kind of empowered. And I'd be like, "Right, get coffee. I'm feel even more empowered." You know, right. it just reminded me of the kind of the the, the kind of the menace that I was, not right. menace, but when I was in my drug days, it's like I'm gonna get as stoned as possible, as yeah. or as eat up as possible type yeah. of thing. And I was like, yeah, you do don't me want to like I don't that. want any of that. And the doctor said, you can try different things. And I was like, you know, nah, turn it in, mate. I'm not, I, I, I felt that it, because of the, um, I mean, there's another story we don't need to go into right now, but the, yeah, I wanted, because of the diagnosis, I wanted to try the medication and see how it made me feel and whether it had an impact on my life, which would, would be a beneficial one, then great, but it didn't. And so I, mm. you know, I just stopped mm. and, yeah, um, and like you say, it's it, it, it's. I mean, you're just doing what 
you need to do. Mm. Um, and good days and bad days. I mean, that's another thing, you know. You don't get to a point where you're winning all the time, not mm. far from it. You know, there's there's still the kind of those days where, you you know, it's you're not feeling that great and... Uh, you just have to deal with it. Yeah, but now we, I feel like I'm better in a better position to deal with it because I've got these tools. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I remember teaching a workshop once um, somewhere and I was talking about this yoga practice I was doing and this Zen practice I was doing. And this, the, one of the students was there, he's kind of writing it all down. I said, oh, what, what are you doing? Said, oh, I'm writing it all down. I'm going to try it. I said, you know, that's great, but, you know, <laughs> this is what's right for me. And a big part of my kind of teaching philosophy is, you know, it, it, I think we have a, a responsibility uh, as human beings, <laughs> getting a bit deep now, but, you know, to, 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 to find practices that we can align with that mm. make us better human beings mm. um, uh, to ourselves as much as anybody else, mm. you know. And for, just for me, I'm, I'm fortunate to have found this kind of dual practice of, of, of Zen and, and, and of Ashtanga. Um, Hmm. I've got a great. Have you ever heard of a teacher called Ram Das? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. From the sixties. Got. I remember listening to a, a story. He was I love giving. listening to his music, where he like talks over music. Oh right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he gives a story when he first came back from India in the sixties. He was traveling around America, you know, talking about his experience of India and spirituality, and da -da -da. and he was like in the middle of you know, um, redneck territory somewhere, in middle America. And he was, you know, he was stood up talking about, you know, his experience of India and meditation and da-da-da. And he said there was this old little old lady on the front row and she was kind of nodding in agreement with literally everything he was saying. And he was like, wow, wow, this, this, this woman, little woman knows everything that I'm talking about. And he's like going into deep kind of esoterica around spirituality and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, in the, in the meet and greet, <laughs> in the meet and greet um, post-talk, he managed to to, 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 to to get this little old lady and he was like, you know, you 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 knew everything I was talking about, didn't you? She goes, yes, yes, yes. And he said, oh, you know, so what practice do you do? And the little old woman said, I crochet. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> and that idea of, you know, that woman's practice was crochet. My practice is Ashtanga and Zen. Yeah. You know, yeah. you have to find yourself and part of, I, I think, your journey is trying to find things. Yeah. For someone, it might be, you know, deep, sea diving and you know somewhere else do what works for you do what works you for you absolutely you, as they say. Uh, and but it, it is you know finding a body practice and and, I, and you know I, you know i was partial to fish and chips and junk food and all the rest of it in fact you know my achilles heel is is white chocolate right but um, i mean there are worse achilles heels there are indeed, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah but I, I guess that it, it kind of felt like they aligned with each other, you know, the, the healthy body. I be, as I started to do more yoga, I became, you know, my, my diet became better quite naturally, mm. not by me forcing it. Mm. Um, mm. But, you know, I, I guess diet plays into it as well, mm. you know, when you, you, you know, I think yourself. when you're practicing, though, you, you just, you think more broadly and holistically about your health and nutrition and all of that good stuff, don't you? Yeah. Um, so what does it's been such an interesting conversation um, and thank you so much for sharing oh, that's good um, what does life look like for you today well yeah where do we start so um, <laughs> so I'd set up um, I'd set up Yoga Manchester 20 odd years ago and I mean that was a bit of a fluke really 
that i mean it was yoga manchester because that i figured out you know what are the two words that people are going to put into google yoga and manchester <laughs> right hey presto literally yeah yoga manchester that's where that was born and i'd set up you know i was teaching some classes and then i set up some more classes and i got people teaching other classes for me and then i set up some classes in the city center yoga express kind of shorter classes and so this kind of umbrella was was, was growing and then we moved to la don't talk about that later if you want but um and then i lived in london for a while and I set up a studio in london so you know uh, pre-covid i had yoga manchester and yoga express which were both manchester based and mm. yoga london club which was in london mm. and then obviously the pandemic happened and they all closed down and um i was like every other tom dick and deirdre teaching on zoom um which I didn't really like actually but it was a necessity i guess and uh, and then obviously once I'd, I'd, I'd split up with uh, my my wife, my ex-wife, I made the decision to resurrect Yoga Manchester. And so I'd spent the past kind of two or three, perhaps even longer, figuring how that would look like. Um, uh, and yeah, and then we opened our doors maybe just under two months ago. Right. Doing three classes a day, five days a week, kind of Monday through to Friday. Uh, and that, I mean, it's been, you know, it's been amazing um, from going like teaching on Zoom to not doing much to kind of jumping in beat first, doing all these classes again, teaching up, you know, yeah. feel, you know, uh, like I said before, you know, this, this authenticity is its own authority. I feel authentic in what I'm doing. I think I'm, I'm, I, what I'm doing is a value to people mm. and that makes it easier but, you know, just loving the teaching, being back in the room with people mm. uh, in that interaction uh, and, you know, that place where I can teach a group of people, but being able to individualize it as well for, mm. for various students and being available, being present and open for people who, you know, I mean, like yourself, like we just got talking off the cuff, talking about this, this, this podcast, just, you know, mm, mm. Um, some people might be talking about football or, or mm, something else, you know, mm. um, I, th those interactions, I think, that I've missed. It's just purpose as well, isn't it? it you yeah. know, as a, yeah. a kind yeah. of humanistic level, we crave and desire and get a lot from having purpose and direction. So that makes a lot of sense. Um this is the last question that I ask all my guests, Matt. Mm -hmm. What's my favourite colour? <laughs> what is your favourite colour? Blue. Blue. Nice, good to know. Oh, yeah, because that's on the logo of uh, Yoga Manchester, isn't it? It is. That's a lovely blue, actually. Um, no, my question is, what next for you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I know one thing for sure. <laughs> I, w I won't be living in one place for a, for a while. <laughs> um what next well i guess it's just the the continuation of yoga manchester and building that up mm. and you know getting people through the door getting more bums on mats and 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 just enjoying that enjoying teaching being with people um yeah, yeah. that's that's what's next really i can't see beyond that um, you know, where will I be in six months, eight months, 12 months? I don't know, but all, all my sole focus and energy is on, you know, the rebuilding of Yoga Manchester. Great. Um, yeah, that's, 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 yeah, that's what it is. And for any listeners that are Manchester based, how can they find out more about Yoga Manchester? They can 
follow me on the gram. We didn't get to speak about social media, did we? So social uh, Instagram uh, at uh, do you put at in Instagram? It's Yoga MCR at Yoga, at Yoga MCR. MCR. Yeah, or nice. the, the website's uh, Yoga Hyphen Manchester but I guess everyone's on the gram these days, aren't they? Yeah. All yeah. the cool kids. So, nice. Uh, yeah, yoga MCR. And I promise I will come back and do more classes. Well, I bloody hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thanks, mate. Fun. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you got something from it. What Next is recorded at Stave Studios, which is at Stave underscore studio on Insta. If you want to get in touch with me through Insta, it's at whatnext.podcast or you can email me at carl at whatnextpodcast.co.uk. For new episodes, subscribe on all the main podcast platforms. I'd love it if you can also leave us a review as this will help us to reach more people. Remember, if you're thinking of quitting or have recently quit, you're not alone. So keep listening for what's next.